Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. We're nearing the end of our series in Hebrews, our Hold Fast Sermon series, um, about digging deeper into what it looks like to be a Christian in this world, um, to not have just easy answers, and we're moving into the practical side of things. Um, And as the author of Hebrews is always want to do, he kind of throws out a final warning for us as we approach um, as, as he approaches the end of his book. There are a set of questions known as the Quaker questions. They're often used as either, either icebreaker questions in a group or kind of get-to-know-you questions. The Quakers, if you don't know, uh, are also called the Society of Friends. They're a smaller Protestant denomination that began in England under George Fox. And they call themselves the Quakers because they trembled before the word of God, and actually, it was first uh, said as a as an insult to them. You guys tremble, you quake too much at the word of God, and they thought, you know, actually, we really like that. We're going to take that on for ourselves. Their series of questions, much like their particular angle on faith, start very simply, but very quickly get quite deep and intimate. And often, they awake uh, in those answering the questions parts of themselves that were in deep slumber. They focus our attention on some of the most formative years in our lives between the ages of 7 and 18. The questions are this. First, how is your home heated? What room or place in your house was the center of warmth? Who was the center of warmth? See how they move you quickly from just maybe a fact about your house, but to your feelings. You know, no matter how a home is heated, it's heated by fire. 
even in our centrally heated home here. There's a gas flame warming the air as it's distributed throughout the duct. Some of our rooms are quite well ventilated and thus well heated in the winter. Other parts of our home are not as well ventilated and not as warm, or they sit on an outside wall, a corner room or something to that effect. Some of the rooms can even become too warm at times, so we have to adjust the thermostat um, or um, put on or remove uh, clothing, blankets, and such. Because of our ductwork, um, unfortunately, in the summer, the basement is freezing cold, as our children are experiencing right now. Uh, but oftentimes in the winter, it's roasting because of how the ductwork works down there. It's not always uh, able to perfectly heat and warm our home. Yet often it's not the central heating that determines the temperature of our house or the warmth of it. As the third question indicates, it's often how we experience our home, who is in our home, how we use our home as well. The same is true of God. The author of Hebrews is warning us. He says, We have not come to find our home in God, and it be one of fear and dread, but one of warmth and grace and mercy. See, both mountains that he mentions, actually, he he just kind of implies Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Uh, Both of them lead us to God. But it's how we approach God that matters. Are we going to meet him at Mount Sinai? Or are we going to meet him on Mount Zion? Let's look at both mountains. Mount Sinai, he writes about in verses 18 through 21. Again, he writes, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The author is referring to Mount Sinai, and he's using it as a metaphor to remind us the different ways that we can approach God. Mount Sinai is where the Israelites received the law. We see the first mention, or one of the earliest mentions of it, in Exodus 19. The Israelites had been freed from slavery in Egypt, and they were making their way to the promised land. And God said, I'm going to meet you here in this place. It was a place of consecration, a place where the law was given to the people through Moses, not just the Ten Commandments, but the fullness of it. It was where, uh, where described where and how sacrifices would be made and what the priests should wear. Much of the identity of the people of Israel was given to them in this place. But as the author writes, it was a place of great thunder and lightning, fear and dread and darkness and gloom. It was a place where God revealed himself to Moses. Moses said, I want to see you. And God passed before him, and great thunder and lightning descended upon the mountain. And he, God himself shielded Moses' face so that he could not see the fullness of God, but merely his backside. Limits were set around the mountain when Moses went up. Um, Exodus 19 says, See to it that no one go up on the mountain or touch it, for they will surely be put to death. The whole camp trembled and quaked when the Lord descended on the mountain. Hebrews is right to describe it as a place that cannot be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, and gloom, a place where fear and death and punishment were the prominent descriptors, a place where people 
feared the voice of God speaking to them. And even their mediator, Moses himself, said that he trembled with fear. The writer of Hebrews is reminding us that this is not the place where we are called to go. Yet it is one that we are often tempted to return. Cooking in kitchens, uh, professionally and otherwise, um, you have to be very mindful of heat and fire and protect yourself from it. Um, I was made fun of when I worked at the kitchen in Chicago because I had nylon uh, pants on, which could easily have been gone up in flames at any moment or burned to my skin. One of the things that you use, uh, learn to use quite quickly is a dry towel, and it has to be completely dry. If it is a damp towel, if it is a moist towel, if it is a wet towel, when you go to reach into the oven or when you grab a pot that is on the stove, the water in the towel will conduct straight to your hand very quickly and will burn you. But a dry towel insulates you from the heat so that you can grab the pan, you can grab um, whatever you need um, out of uh, a smoking hot oven or off of the stovetop itself. Stacy, uh, as I cooked for her one um, time when we were dating at her house, I said, "Where's your? Where do you have a dry towel? And she said, well, I have hot pads. And I was like, well, that doesn't really work for me. We don't have many hot pads in this house anymore. Um, and so I, I described this process of using a dry towel versus a wet towel, and she thought, thought this was very intriguing. And yet she doubted me. And so she was cooking. She was baking some cookies, I believe it was. And she goes, yeah, I burned myself. And I said, well, I told you to use a dry towel. She goes, yeah, I didn't think that was true. I used a wet towel. It wasn't a soaking wet towel. It was a damp towel. And I dropped them all on the ground. We have to take care when we're around a blazing fire, right? It's usually quite dangerous. When we have a bonfire in the yard, we usually describe it very much with, and it's totally contained, but we describe it the same way as darkness, gloom, fear, death, and punishment. And really what we want to be able to do is to have our kids not fall into it so they respect the fire, so that they don't get burned. And yet we're so tempted to return to the fire what is your Sinai? Where do you need to be careful not to get burned? Where are the places, the people, the situations that you experience fear and anxiety? What are those things, in other words, that you cling to for false comfort that will end up burning you? It's important to name these things so that they are identified and their false power and comfort can be dismantled. We have to be able to name these things, to bring them into the light. And when do you find yourself tempted to return to them? You know, our kids want to read the same books over and over again. They want to see the same movies and shows because they know the ending. They can predict what's going to happen. It's a safe place for them. And unfortunately, though, we do these things in our own lives. We know what's going to happen, even if it's something that is going to be dangerous to us, even if it's something that we know is going to cause us harm. We return to the places that we know, even if they are places of fear and trembling. They have ingrained patterns in us, in our behavior, in our thinking, in our functioning, in our minds, in our bodies. It's very hard to break these cycles. 
habits and patterns are not just things that need to be stopped, but they have to be replaced. Chuck DeGroote, who is a counselor and a professor at Western Theological Seminary, says this, It takes longer than you'd imagine to break free from the vicious feedback loop within your body, uh, within when your body has become habituated to constant storms within your sympathetic nervous system. You may have broken free from a traumatizing situation, but you may be apt to re-engage the cycle by picking a fight with a spouse or finding another person to push up against or over-consuming or commenting on the political or ecclesial news of the day. It's exhausting. This activates an old, familiar neurochemical cocktail. You may leave Egypt and route to the promised land, but there are a thousand other Egypts along the way that will hook you. Our author in Hebrews reminds us, encourages us, warns us, that instead of returning to Sinai, instead of returning to Egypt, we need to head to Mount Zion. Verses 22 through 24. He writes, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of of Abel. In contrast, the author writes, we, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion refers to Jerusalem. This was the city on the hill. This was the city of David. This is where the temple itself was established. King David captured the hill from the Jebusites and made it his royal residence. The Ark of the Covenant, where the tablets that were given at Sinai were held, were placed here, first in a tent, eventually in the temple that Solomon built. Mount Zion, or Zion, as we heard in our psalm today, eventually becomes another way just to refer to Jerusalem as a whole, the place where God dwells. Uh, The author writes that we have come to Mount Zion, and there's seven aspects of Mount Zion that we have come to, that we get to enter into, that we get to participate in. First of all, it's Mount Zion itself, the city of living God, heavenly Jerusalem. This is the eternal city, our heavenly homeland. Not only this, this imagery evokes the idea of God's presence with his people and his dwelling with them, the city of the living God. Secondly, we come to the angels in festive gathering. I love that this is put so so quickly in uh, the description of Mount Zion. This language that is used, this festive gathering language, is, comes from Greek and Roman, uh, Greco-Roman civic gatherings and even the Olympics. In the Old Testament, this language refers to multitude of gatherings, especially the feast days that were held. It brings forth the idea that the true eternal festive gathering we long for is the heavenly gathering of fervent joy. Third, it says that we come to the assembly of the firstborn. This is the whole church joining in on the celebration, the whole communion of saints, not merely into the community, not merely being invited to the party, but membership, belonging to the party. And we get foretastes of this 
here and uh, here and now through faith in Christ. Fourth, we come to God, the Judge of all, who actually pronounces just judgments on all. God will judge all the earth, but those found in the assembly of the firstborn will be justified by their faith. Five, we come to the spirits of righteousness made perfect. These are those who are already enjoying the presence of God. Those saints who have already gone uh, before us, been made perfect, and get to enjoy a perfect relationship with God. Made perfect comes from the Greek word for the completed goal. God's goal for us is to be in perfect communion with him. And this happens through Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Number six, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant and the guarantor of the new covenant. In his sacrificial death, the covenant was sealed and will not be annulled. Seven, the the sprinkled blood that speaks. I think it's easy to focus on the blood and to compare and contrast uh, Abel's blood with this blood here, but rather the contrast is on the speaking itself. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance and justice, but Jesus' blood speaks pardon and mercy and grace. It's in this last reference that we see the entirety of redemptive history from the fall to the redemption of Jesus Christ to the consummation, all of history being caught up in God's purposes of redemption, of restoring his creation to him. And there are seven images Seven is the the divine number, the holy number here reminding us that this is the ultimate eschatological encounter with God. There is a real tension between the already and the not yet of our faith. We have access to parts of Mount Zion now, but only tastes here and there, which is why we are so tempted to return to Sinai. But in the end, the author reminds us we should persevere in our faith. We will enjoy the fullness of the festal gathering at Mount Zion. You know, our homes can be such places of extra warmth when, um, at the holidays, especially when people come and celebrate with us, between all the family members who are there, the heat pumping through the vents, the extra fireplaces on, the rich food and drink that we enjoy all add extra warmth to our hearts, both literally and figuratively. Often the anticipation of being home for the holidays on all the festivities um, alone can warm our hearts. Knowing my own personality, most of the warmth takes place in the anticipation and the fantasy of everything and everyone getting along and going well, rather than the reality of the whole family being gathered into one home. I know some of our homes don't always provide a place that is warming to our hearts, and not uh, all of our families um, bring that for us. The promise of this passage is that the anticipation of heaven and the foretaste that we have here and now will never lead to disappointment Disappointment when we reach our heavenly Mount Zion. These seven things and so much more will be the fullness. We will enjoy it um, deep into our souls. Uh, I saw... <laughs> had football on that yesterday and there was um, a Mountain Dew commercial 
um, and I didn't know Mountain Dew was still being made. I thought it ended in 99. But um, they go through this whole thing, and as they drink Mountain Dew, they start to see these animals inside of themselves being revealed. I don't know if this is applied. This is not in my notes, but... Um, they see they they start to come out of of their shells, if you will. They start to have the fullness of who they are revealed to themselves. And at the end, it says, "Your soul needs Mountain Dew." And I was like, "Oh, dang! We were going very existential on Mountain Dew commercials, of all things." The fullness of who we are will get to be fully enjoyed at Mount Zion. Our soul needs Mount Zion. We often get this wrong in the church today. We don't focus on the life of a festal communal gathering where God enlivens us. And said we focus on all the prohibitions and the judgment and the things that we need to uh, um, uh, remove from our lives or the, the judgment and the sin. This passage certainly is a warning about turning our backs on faith. But it's also a warning in the positive sense on what we have in store for us when we keep our faith. John Bunyan, the great Christian writer, wrote, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Perhaps Red Bull would have been more appropriate uh, illustration there. The gospel gives us the things that we need to be able to arrive in Zion. Which begs the question, you know your Sinai, what's your Zion? What gives you life? What brings you life to celebrate the invitation that you have received to keep the faith? What keeps you? Lastly, the author writes of a consuming fire. This final paragraph, verses 25 through 29. So see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will not only shake the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As we said, this is a warning passage, and the author of Hebrews wanted to get one more in. Do not refuse, do not reject, do not escape God, but listen, pay attention, Embrace these words. When God speaks, his voice shakes. Um, when God speaks, his voice shakes the foundation of what we thought to be true, but what is actually false, what has um, been made, what will crumble, the things that we have put up around us. And he does this so that the deep foundation of his word will be established for us. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There's safety there. There's security there. There's a rival at home that warms our hearts fully and completely. He says, so let us worship with reverence and awe. Let us live our whole lives toward God. Our God is a consuming fire, the source of warmth for our whole lives, both that of judgment 
and especially of purification. While our kingdom cannot be shaken, uh, we are guaranteed to be a part of our kingdom, uh, a part of the kingdom of God, but our lives may be shaken in the process. I think we all experience that uh, to one level or another. In calling God a consuming fire, Hebrews highlights the warmth of his grace and mercy and love, but it also reminds us that a part of what God is doing is burning away the dross, the extra, the impurities, all that hinder us from living a life of worship. The crucible is where we put our precious metals, or the metallurgist, I don't do this, but where the metallurgist puts all our precious metals to be able to purify it. And he heats it up to thousands of degrees to burn all the impurities away that is in the gold or the silver that he is refining. The final step in metallurgy is to make it more pure, more lovely, and more valuable than it was in the beginning. The metallurgist refines the metal until he can see his own reflection in it. How do we know what needs to be burned away? How do we hear God's voice? I would offer up that it is in our worship where we are able to do that through God's word, through his sacraments, through prayer. Those are the things that we design our worship around. In the word, we hear God's grace given to those he loves. We're reminded of the story of God incarnate Jesus coming to be with his people who did not leave them at Mount Sinai, but who continually leads us to Mount Zion to find our home in him, to find our identity, to find our belonging in him. In the sacraments of baptism and communion, we receive his life as we trust him with our own. God doesn't just take our lives. He gives us his as well. Eugene Peterson says the Eucharist and baptism stand as a bulwark against reducing our participation in salvation to the exercise of devotional practices before God or being recruited to run errands for God. It is the whole life that he is after. When we give him his, he gives us. Uh, When we give him ours, he gives us his. In prayer, we speak words to God. We lift up our hearts to him. We give him our concerns, those things that weigh upon us. But we also listen for his voice. Prayer opens our eyes and ears to what God is doing in our life and invites him to be a part of our lives. This is our worship. Community gathered together to hear God's word of hope to us to receive the word himself, Jesus. This act of worship transforms our whole lives into worship of God. This means that our whole lives can be oriented to him. We do this weekly, Lord willing, so that we are able to be uh, reoriented him. Even this last week I was driving from uh, one from like Littleton back over to uh, um, Arapahoe in 25, and I knew how to go, but I still put Google Maps on. I don't know why necessarily. But there was a comfort for it, right? Maybe it would have alerted me to unforeseen circumstances if there was traffic or anything like that. But it helped guide me. This is the effect of our weekly worship, to orient all of our life towards God in worship, to be consumed by him. 
Where in your life do you need God's consuming fire? We all face challenging circumstances, sometimes seemingly impossible circumstances. The awful wonder of Mount Sinai tempts us to return to the mountain of fear and shame. We know that place. It's a story that we've been to over and over again. And yet, we still often wonder if we're allowed to go to Zion. Can we meet him there? What we often miss is that both of these places were places where people met God. At Sinai, the Israelites made a golden calf to worship when Moses was on the mountain too long. But on Zion, God invites us into true worship, removing all the things that hinder us from living our lives for him. Our God reveals himself in Jesus Christ, who is the one who has removed the duty of our Sinai's and given us the joy of Zion. You know, there's actually a fourth question in the Quaker questions. When did God become more than just a word to you? When God is merely a word, he can be easily dismissed or ignored altogether, like the Israelites at Mount Sinai. But God does not just want to be a concept or an idea. He is a consuming fire. He cannot, he will not be ignored. He sent his son Jesus so that we would see him as a person, our great high priest, who leads us to Mount Zion to enjoy the heavenly feast set before us. He is more than just a word to us. He is the life-giving word who gave his life for us so that our lives would not quake before him but be consumed in worshipful, worshipful adoration toward him. Let's praise. Father, we thank you for um, your word, uh, for your son coming to us, reminding us of the grace and mercy that you so long to pour out on us. Lord, remove those things from us that hinder us, that call us back, the siren song, reminding us of um, the, the normal patterns of life that we know, and give us grace and mercy. Lead us to Mount Zion, to our heavenly home in you that our lives may be full of worship, that they may be oriented toward you being able to sing and your praises being able to live uh, the life that you have for us, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen.